Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Most of you know my role here at Church of the Redeemer is I'm the director for college ministry uh, with our, our campus ministry partner, the CCO, uh, or the Coalition for Christian Outreach. And there are a lot of reasons why I think caring for the 40,000 college students here in Greensboro really matters. But one of the main reasons for me can be summed up in one number, 53%. 53%. According to a 2017 American College Health Association um, survey, 53% of college students today say that they feel hopeless. 53%. These are young men and women in the prime of their life, getting a college education in the wealthiest nation of the world with their entire lives ahead of them, and more than half say that they have no hope. Now, I'm not a culture war kind of guy, but I think that statistic should make us concerned. Why is this happening? And let's be honest, hopelessness is not something that's limited to a college campus, right? I mean, statistics are one thing, but I know for a fact, I have no doubt, that many of us here this morning feel this kind of hopelessness as well. You know, maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, but now you just kind of feel out of touch with God. You've sort of forgotten why you became a Christian in the first place. Maybe you went to summer camp and you had this amazing experience, but now you're back and real life is just so hard. And maybe things going on in your life, like a difficult seasonal transition or patterns of relational brokenness are just blocking your vision so much that it is hard to see anything beyond them. Or maybe you're not a Christian and you're just here today because you're tired of running around in circles and you're looking and searching for something bigger than yourself. Wherever you are, I'm right there with you. And I think that the Apostle Paul's words to us in the book of Colossians that we read this morning are a gift to all of us. In just 14 verses, I think Paul lays out one of the clearest pictures of the Christian life that we can find, what it looks like, how it begins, where it comes from. But above all, I think Paul points out to us the particular soil that the Christian life is meant to spring up from, and that's hope. So let's pray, and we'll dive in. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and reform our imaginations and renovate our hope. Come and meet with us, Lord. Amen. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians. Um, That's where we're going to be. And I just want to start with a quick overview of the sort of big picture of what the Christian life looks like that Paul lays out there. And Colossians was a letter. We're reading somebody else's mail. It's a cool thing about the Bible. Um, It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a fledgling church that has just started in this city of Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. Um, And Paul had heard that this church had started there, and things were going well. It was growing, and people's lives were being changed. And so he writes this letter to them, actually from prison in Rome, 
to encourage them, to teach them, and to give thanks for them, and to challenge them from afar. And so he writes, starting in verse 3, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. But Paul says he's thankful specifically for the Colossian Christians' faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. And if you've read any of Paul's other letters, you may have heard this trifecta before, because they show up all over the place. You can find it in Romans. You can find it in 1 Thessalonians. You can arguably find it in Galatians. And most famously, you're probably familiar with it showing up in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if I were to sum up what the Christian life looks like, according to Paul, this is it. A life of faith, love, and hope. And the church historically has called these three things the theological virtues. This is the stuff that the Christian life is made out of. And there's a lot of details to be worked out. There's a lot of weeds to wade into. But really, when you all boil it down, it comes down to faith, love, and hope. So what do we mean by that? What is faith? What is love? What is hope? Well, let's start with faith. Faith is not just a set of mental beliefs. And it's not just a sense that, you know, things are going to work out. You know, sometimes we say, you know, just have faith. I mean, it'll just work out. That's not what Paul's talking about. Christian faith is all about its object, Christ. As Paul says in verse 3, he's excited about their faith in Christ. It's our trusting relationship with Christ. Or as one writer puts it, faith is really about believing allegiance. Christians believe that Jesus is the risen and reigning Lord of the world. And we have faith when we align or entrust our lives to him. We allow Christ to set the agenda for our lives because we trust that he will lead us into the flourishing and the abundance that we were made for. That's faith. It is active. And that's why Paul goes on to pray for the Colossians in verse 10 that they would grow in the knowledge of God, that they'd be filled with the knowledge of God. This is what he prays for them. And it's because he wants their faith to be strengthened by an even clearer sight of who the God of their faith is. So what about love? Well, again, we could do a whole sermon series on love, right? But just shortly, biblical love is not primarily an emotion. It's not just an emotion. Like faith the focus of love is actually not on us, but it's on Christ. Because at its core, Christian love is about an ethic of Christ-likeness. We imitate the way that Christ treated others, sacrificial self-giving for the sake of saints, neighbors, sinners, and enemies. Everybody. That's love. That's the way of living that Jesus says sums up the entire Old Testament law. And it's the Colossian love that Paul prays that God would strengthen when he asks that God would help them to bear fruit in every good work in verse 10. That's what Paul's praying for. And just as a quick side note, we have all these things at our church here called summer growth series and small groups, all these sorts of things. The purpose of things is to help us work out faith and love in real life. 
It's meant to help us understand who God is and what faithfulness to God looks like and what faithfulness and love to our neighbor looks like in difficult situations, both personal and public. And so we have classes on personal finance and sexuality this summer that are meant to help us work out our faith and our love on a more individual level. And we have a class on immigration to help us work out what it looks like to love and to be faithful to Christ on a public level in the American context in which we live. Because ultimately, I think the divide between our personal and corporate life, the individual and the systemic, it breaks down in Christ because all of our life is meant to be lived under the lordship of Christ. All of it. But if you're like me, you can hear all that and you say, that sounds great, but that's really hard. (laughs) That's kind of overwhelming. I mean, Paul's like, yeah, the Christian life is pretty simple. Just live in complete obedience to Christ and lay down your life for everybody, particularly the people that you hate and the people that hate you. No big deal. You know, that's, that's all there is to it. Or in verse 10, as he says, all you have to do is live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every way. You know, just live in a way that lines up completely with the source of all being and holiness. And then you're, then you're set. You've got the Christian life figured out. All kidding aside, though, this calling that Paul talks about is a high calling. If you're looking for an easy or a boring life, don't be a Christian. I don't recommend it. But I know for me, even when I hear this and I say, that sounds amazing, I want that, I also start to feel defeated, right? Because, you know, I want that, but I know that for me, there are so many habits and patterns in my life that make me feel like those are ruling me rather than Christ. Living this life of faith and love is so hard. And I'd go as far as to say that if all that Paul was telling us this morning is that you need to have more faith and love, you need to live worthy of God, if that was it, I think that this would be bad news, not good news. Because that's a command that I know from experience I cannot live up to. And I hate to break it to you, while growth series and summer camp and small groups, all these things are really important, by themselves, they are not enough to fuel the Christian life. They're not. So what is? How do we live this life that we are called to? How could we ever live a life worthy of the Lord? This is where we have to come back to hope. You know, in the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 12, I'm sure you've heard at a bajillion weddings that many of you are probably familiar with, Paul says that there are these three important things, faith, hope, and love, in that order, right? And he says the greatest of these is love. But it's interesting, in our passage here in Colossians, Paul actually saves hope for the end. Did you notice that? One theologian says that here in Colossians, hope is the greatest of these. Hope is the greatest of these. Because look at what Paul says in verse 5. He says he's thankful for the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus and the love that they have for all the saints because, he says, they spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. They spring from the hope that's stored up for you in heaven. Hope, he says, 
is the soil that can actually grow a life that is worthy of the Lord. But again, I think we need to clarify what we're talking about because hope is one of these words that we use a lot. And it's one of those words that we keep using that I don't think it means what I think it means. We don't, I don't think it means what we think it means. It's not the same necessarily as Christian hope. Now, when we use the, hope, the word hope normally, I'll say something like, man, I really hope UNC goes to a bowl game this year. And that is definitely wishful thinking. Or I'll say, man, I really hope I get a parking spot in the shade so that when I get back in my car after church, I don't feel like I'm walking into a bug zapper. But when I say that, what I really mean is I want UNC to go to a bowl game. I want a shady parking spot. That's really all it is. You know, the hope we normally talk about is basically a wish for the future. It's a synonym for optimism, right? We want to be optimistic. According to Siri, the expert on most things, the first <laughs> definition of hope is a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen. And I think that's how we usually use the word, right? We just want something to happen. That's what we mean when we say we hope for it. And American culture, I think, thinks of itself as a hopeful culture, right? American culture thinks that we're a place of optimism, right? Being Americans associated with having an American dream, a hope for a future of opportunity and promise. This is supposed to be a culture of hope. So why do 53% of our best and our brightest and many of us here today feel so hopeless? As my favorite theologian, Leslie Newbigin, observed nearly 30 years ago, he said, a society which believes in a worthwhile future saves in the present as to invest in the future. Contemporary Western society spends in the present and piles up debts for the future, ravages the environment, and leaves its grandchildren to cope with the results as best they can. That was 30 years ago. Friends, I think we live in a society that has a serious hope deficit. And I think that many of us, even who call ourselves Christians, have become content living a life with a serious deficiency of vitamin H. We've just become used to it. That's right, vitamin H. <laughs> it's short for hope. There are two problems, I think, that I think is the reason why this is happening. I think there's two problems with what we've come to call hope in our culture. And the first problem is we've attached our hope to objects that cannot deliver what they promise. We've placed our hope in things that can't deliver. We place our hope, we place our deepest desires on getting a particular job or a particular promotion, on getting a certain spouse, on getting particular grades, on getting a house in a particular neighborhood. We set our hope on feeling a certain way every day or not feeling a certain way every day. But while we can certainly desire these things, and it's not bad necessarily to desire these things, we don't have any concrete reason to trust or to believe necessarily that we'll attain them, that we'll get them, right? We can hope for them, but do we know that it'll happen? And then what if we do? What if we get the things that we're hoping for? I mean, some of you know the disillusionment that you feel when you get the thing that you've been chasing for for so long, and it does not satisfy you the way you thought that it would. And you know that the hopelessness that comes on the other side of that is often the worst of all. 
we've attached our hope to objects that cannot satisfy the deepest longings in our souls. But the second problem, I think, and maybe the biggest problem, is that our hope is attached to a shrunken imagination. I think our hope is attached to a shrunken imagination. So what do I mean by that? Where, where does imagination come into this? Well, as I was thinking and praying about this passage and talking to some friends over the past couple weeks about hope, it hit me one day and I began to realize that our imagination, the imagination is the human organ of hope. The imagination is the human organ of hope. Hope happens in the imagination. Now, hear me, that does not mean that it's imaginary, that it's not real. What I'm saying is that our, it's in our imagination. It's in our capacity to, to bring images and thoughts and feelings to our mind that aren't present right in front of us physically. Our capacity to do that, that's what allows us to engage with hope, right? We dwell on the things that we hope for in our imagination. You might be imagining and hoping for a huge BLT for lunch right now. That's what you're hoping for. And I say that at great risk to myself. It's a big faux pas to talk about lunch if you're preaching a sermon, because that's probably all you're going to think about. That's all I would do. But try to stay with me. The thing that you're imagining, you hope for. The things that capture our imaginations become our hopes. You tell me what stories you tell about the world and about your life. You tell me what images and songs and objects fill your imagination on a daily basis, and I'll tell you what your hope is. That is how we do it. What is your imagination filled with? What is your imagination filled with? What images or thoughts do you dwell on? Images from social media? News headlines? Consumer products and jingles? Logos, video games, repeated narratives that you tell about yourself. As a serious perfectionist, the narrative I tell about myself constantly is, that's not good enough, that's not right enough, you need to do that better. So often that captures my imagination. And the more our imagination is filled, I think, with these kinds of things, the more we turn inward, the smaller our world becomes until the horizon of our hope no longer extends beyond the borders of our own self. Our dreams start and end with visions of ourselves. And the things that we hope for depend on us to make them happen. That's a hard place to be. And needless to say, that is not Christian hope. So what is? What is Christian hope? Well, is it just like a wish for the American dream, but bigger and better? Well, is it just a really powerful kind of optimism? Well, that sounds nice, but no matter how big our optimism or how strong the desire for a better future might be, that's still just a feeling that we have. And it doesn't give us any kind of concrete reason to trust that a good future is coming. I want you to hear today that biblical hope is something very different from optimism. Biblical hope is completely different from optimism. Leslie Newbigin, the guy I quoted a minute ago, used to be a missionary in India for about 40 years. And he would often get asked, you know, you know are you feeling optimistic or are you feeling pessimistic 
about the future of the church in India. And so he came up with sort of a canned response that he would always give when people asked him this question. And he would tell them, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So the question doesn't really come up. See, a human program, a human activity is something about which we can be optimistic or pessimistic about its future. But Christ's resurrection, he says, is a reality that we either believe or we disbelieve. What about you? Do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the church in America? Do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about your life? What if that's the wrong question to ask? See, biblical hope is not about being optimistic. In fact, it's not primarily about us at all. See, look at what Paul says about hope. He says that hope is something that is stored up for us in heaven in verse 5. It's something that the Colossians heard about in the true message of the gospel. In other words, hope isn't primarily something that they or we do. Hope is not a verb. It's a noun. It's something that's already been accomplished by God. It's not a human activity or a program, but an external reality that we are called to receive and to trust and to believe. Our hope is not in our own feelings of hopefulness. Our hope is not in our hope, if that makes sense. But our hope is in the object of our hope, what God has already accomplished for us. And what's that? Well, I think Paul sums it up well for us here in verses 12 to 14. He says that the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, rescue, the forgiveness of sins. God has rescued us from a life of shrunken imagination and shrunken hope and brought us into a land with big, big horizons. He has forgiven our sins and made us worthy to share in Christ's own inheritance of glory. Later in verse 27, Paul says that the whole mystery of the gospel can be summed up in this one phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I think glory is sort of a strange word. We don't use it a whole lot, particularly applied to ourselves, right? We might talk about the glory of God, but it sure makes me feel uncomfortable to talk about glory for me, right? Or, or glory for us. So what, what is this glory that Paul's talking about? Well, what if he's talking about the prayer actually being answered? that we would live a life worthy of the Lord? What if the prayer could be answered that we could please God in every way? What if the hope of glory is the hope that joined with Christ, that we would truly become a source of God's own delight, that with Christ we would be like him? One of the best paragraphs I think he ever penned, C.S. Lewis wrote this, it's written that we shall stand before him, stand before God, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible, 
and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. So it is. Friends, this is the hope of the gospel, that our feelings of hopelessness are not the most true thing about us, but that the Father's delight defines and transforms us. Can you imagine that expression of sheer delight and pride when you finally meet God face to face? I know that this sounds kind of counterintuitive, but I want to suggest that filling your imagination with that is the most practical thing that you could do this week. You see, Paul wrote this letter to address a false teaching that many of the Colossians were starting to buy into, that to live a life worthy of the Lord, the key was a combination of religious practice and self-discipline. And we might be tempted to think the same thing, right? In order to live a life worthy of the Lord with perfect faith and perfect love, we need to do it through our own effort and religiosity, through our human programs and our activity. But that is the response of a shrunken imagination. It's the response of a shrunken hope that depends only on ourselves. It's a response that forgets that faith and love spring out of hope. Paul vehemently tells this baby church that though this self-centered approach has the appearance of wisdom, he writes in chapter 2, he says it actually has no value. That just self-picking your own bootstraps has no ability to actually check our self-indulgence. Instead, he urges, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. In other words, he tells them to guard their imaginations and their, from tiny hopes and to fill their minds instead with the glory of God's goodness and the hope of what he's done for us. He tells them to turn from optimism in their own goodness and instead to dwell on the certain reality of Christ's resurrection victory over sin and death. That, he says, not your own power will cause faith and love to spring up in your life. The same goes for us, friends. This week, I encourage you to do two things. First, pay attention to what is capturing your imagination. Pay attention. Pay attention to what kinds of thoughts or narratives or images you dwell on. Pay attention to what words or images you consume. And notice how they impact your imagination, your hope, and your actions. The things that we do do things to us as James Smith says. But second, I invite you to spend time reading and meditating on the words of Scripture. Allow God's Word to fill your mind. Ponder it throughout the day. 
Try reading one of the four Gospels and use your imagination to picture every scene you read. Picture Jesus, the expression on his face. Picture the expression on people's faces who encounter Jesus. Use your imagination to picture yourself in the story. Walk around a bit in the stories of Scripture. And eventually your imagination will begin to make all kinds of connections with your day-to-day circumstances. There is no more important thing you can do to reform your imagination and renovate your hope than to read and to ponder the words of Scripture. You know, I was convicted a couple years ago that I was spending far more time reading news articles than I was reading God's Word. And my imagination followed pretty accordingly. But the ironic thing was, it didn't create a more civically engaged Judson. It just created a more anxious Judson. Friends, trust the power of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Trust the gospel to transform you from the inside out. It will not happen overnight, but the amazing thing I think you'll find is that as your imagination begins to change, and as your hope begins to expand, your life will follow. Christ has made us free, set us free, and made us deserving of God's delight. That's an incredible truth. That's an incredible hope that will change us. Hallelujah.